you in the worthy name of Jesus once again. It's another a great opportunity to spend here in the house of the Lord and to worship together, to enjoy one another's company, but most of all, uh, to praise God. That's what we're here for, uh, to give him the, the glory and the honor that he's so, um, so worthy of. Let us keep that in our perspective as we're here this morning. And I, too, want to give a, a warm welcome to those of you who are visiting. It's good to have you with us. Trust your time here can uh, be a blessing to you as well. I'd like to start uh, the morning off with a little story about a king. So are you listening, Greta? I told Greta this morning at breakfast that I'm going to tell a story about a king. So <laughs> Here's a story about a king. <clears throat> so once upon a time, uh, there was a very, very rich young king. But the fact is, he was also very, very unhappy. And the reason that this young king was so unhappy is because that he lived all alone in this huge, big, fancy palace. He lived all alone. Just him. Oh, how this young king longed for a wife that he could spend his life with. And I forgot to write down what his name was, but it might have been Justin. (laughs) Or maybe Chad. (laughs) I didn't write it down. Then one day, while this king was, was riding down through the village street, he saw this young girl, the most beautiful young girl he'd ever seen before. And so he asked about this girl, and he was told, well, she's just, a, she's just a young peasant girl. But, I mean, his, his heart was so captivated. He made sure that from then on, each day, he would ride down that street and, and just see if he could catch a glimpse of her. But, but see, the king had a problem. Because the question that was in his mind was, you know, how... How am I going to win the love of, of this, this peasant girl? You know, I'm the king. She's just a peasant girl. How am I going to win her love? So, so he thought and he said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw up a royal decree uh, and command that she be brought to the palace and she'll be the queen. There we go. That's, that's what I'll do. But then he, as he thought about that some more, he thought, well, no, that... That wouldn't work because then she'd be forced to obey me. <laughs> you know, th- then she'd just be forced into this. And, and I would never be certain that I had won her love. So no, nah, it wouldn't work too good. So he thought some more and, and he said, okay, I will call her to come in person. And I will dress in my very finest royal clothes. And, you know, and I, will, I will wear my best diamond, diamond uh, finger rings and... And, you know, I will, I will have my sword and my black shiny boots and my most colorful tunic. You know, I will really, and I will just sweep her off her feet, you know, as it were. And, and she'll just want to be here with me. But then, you know, he thought some more about that. Well, he didn't know if that worked because then, you know, then she, then she would just be coming to him for his power and glory, you know, uh, and his riches. And that, that really wouldn't be true love, would it? So he thought some more, and at last he knew what he must do. 
I will come to her as a peasant. I will come to her as a peasant. That is the only way I can, I can really truly win her heart. And so this young king, he left his palace and, and he left his clothes behind, his royal clothes, all those, you know, the things that made him so kingly. He left those back at the palace. He left his comfort there and, and he put on the clothes of a peasant. And he went to live among the peasants. And he went to, to work with the peasants. He went to eat with the peasants. He went to, to just be one of them. And he suffered with the peasants. Until finally, one day, he won the heart of that young peasant girl. Are, are you catching the, the parallels here? You see, so it was with God. So it was with God. You know, God in Jesus Christ became one of us. He lived with us. He left the glories of heaven behind and came here to live with us, to work with us, to suffer with us. He came to, to win us, to win our hearts. The great creator, we could say, became like his creation in order to show us the way to God. As I thought about that, I was reminded of what Solomon prayed uh, there at the dedication of the temple. Many, many years ago, uh, Solomon had had this wonderful, magnificent temple built, unlike any other. And this is what he prayed there at the dedication. He said, but will God in very deed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, Heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house which I have built. It's interesting the perspective that Solomon had. Because, I mean, he had just spent, I won't even say a figure, but tremendous amount of money and years and effort, time, to build this tremendous house for God. But yet he realized, all in the end, he realized that, I mean, the universe can't even contain God. How much less this little house that I have built for him. But will God in very deed dwell with men on the earth? It's an interesting thing to think about because, of course, this was many, many years before God actually came and dwelt with men on the earth. You know, that concept of, of the king of kings who is bigger, you could say, than the universe he created, now confining himself uh, to a human body, that concept was and still is way too much for, for many people to grasp. Well, for even, I mean, it's hard to grasp that for a lot of us, for all of us, you could say, but for people to even, even believe, for people to believe. Is that how a king comes? No. No, that's not how a king comes, you would say. Many people would have said that. That's not how a king comes. Uh, the people back then had, a, you could say, preconceived ideas of how a king would come. And, and this picture was nothing like they, like they dreamed of. Uh, the picture of a, of a poor little baby lying in a, in a feeding trough 
there in a, in a cattle shed certainly was not a part of that picture that they had thought of, how a king would come. But this is what we call uh, the marvelous paradox of Christmas. And I quote, The claim that Christianity makes for Christmas is that at a particular time and place, God came to be with us himself. When Quirinius was governor of Syria in a town called Bethlehem, a child was born who beyond the power of anyone to account for was the high and lofty one made low and helpless. The one who inhabits eternity comes to dwell in time. The one whom none can look upon and live is delivered in a stable under the soft, indifferent gaze of, of cattle. The Father of all mercies puts himself at our mercies. The paradox of Christmas has been called. And yes, it's hard to grasp this. It's hard to wrap our minds around this. But I say it is this concept and it is this reality that should compel us once again uh, to consider what Christmas really means. What does Christmas really mean? It has to do with God becoming flesh, God becoming human. And so let me just read a few verses from John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The Creator, the One who was with God from the beginning. A scientist once said that the best way to send an idea is to wrap it up in a person. <laughs> to wrap an idea up in a person, send it that way, that's the best way to send an idea. And we could say that the, the theological word for all of that is, is incarnation, meaning in the flesh. In the flesh. Jesus was the incarnation of God. Jesus was the way that, that God sent his idea, as it was, uh, to man. And I believe we would have to agree that there, there was and there still is no better way. No better way. It is because the Word became flesh, the Word became flesh, that today we can be in touch with the power and the glory of God Himself. And we have the opportunity to live in His personal presence because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1 uh, for a text this morning. I'd like to share some thoughts from this uh, that I shared back several years ago. 
and it's not exactly the same, but it's, it's uh, some of the, the same thoughts that I shared before from Matthew chapter 1. You know, each of the Gospels presents Jesus in a slightly different way. Uh, you can imagine when, uh, when different people are, are presenting the same story, they, there are certain things that stick out to them. So I would say it one way, and, and Miles would say it another way, and, and Bevan would say it another way, but yet it's the same basic story. Well, that's how it was for the, the writers of the Gospels. And so John presents Jesus as the Son of God, uh, Luke presents Jesus as the Son of Man. Mark presents Jesus as a servant. But then Matthew presents Jesus as a king. A king. I heard a song some time ago uh, that, that had this idea in it. That it just struck me in a new way. There have been many babies over the years who have grown up to become kings... But only one king became a baby. (laughs) Yes, only one king became a baby. Okay, I'd like to read uh, these verses here. Follow along as as we read Matthew chapter 1. And I'll be reading this in the New King James Version uh, for a little clarity with some of these names here in the first part. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham... Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Abinadab, Abinadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shatil, and Shatil begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiad, Abiad begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azer. Azer begot Zadok, Zadok begot Achim, and Achim begot Eliad. Eliad begot Eleazar, Eleazar begot Mathan, and Mathan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations, and from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. God with us. That's the title I'll I'll give our message this morning. And it's one of those things where you could take that title and, and you could just make a message out of that with three points and look at those each word, you know, God with us. God with us. The fact that he is, he's with us in his indwelling presence and so forth. God with us. Think about who we are. You know, you have God on this side and us on this side and, and, and he came and, and brought us the two together. It's a beautiful picture. God with us. And so this morning we want to look at three things. We want to look at uh, the people and the purpose and the power. Uh, the purpose of the incarnation, the power of the incarnation. So first of all, let's consider some about the people here. You know, as I read down through the genealogy of Jesus, I couldn't help but be reminded once again of the great love and the great mercy of God in sending His very own Son, His one and only Son, to save a lost world through a line of people that was far less than perfect. (laughs) Far less than perfect. Can you imagine? I mean, one would think that perhaps it would be most fitting for Jesus to come through a line of people who were blameless. People who always did the right thing. People who always set the right example. I mean, this was Jesus, by the way. This was God's only Son. This was the Creator, the King of kings and Lord of lords. But no, Jesus chose to come through a a line of people who I say were a lot like you and me. A lot like you and me. Jesus chose to identify with us. uh, To become one of us so that he could better show us the way to freedom. And so the genealogy of Jesus includes a variety of people. And you even noticed that as we were reading down through Some names may be familiar and some weren't, but some that were familiar didn't necessarily have a positive context uh, with them. I'd like to read here what Adam Clark had to say about a few of the names here. He said, in this genealogy, you have saints to excite our courage. Abraham, remarkable for his faith, Isaac for his obedience, and Jacob for his fervor and constancy. You have penitent sinners to excite our confidence, such as David, Manassas, and others. And you have sinners of whose repentance and salvation we hear nothing to put us on our guard. We have four women in this genealogy. Two of these were adulteresses, Tamar and Bathsheba. And two were Gentiles, Rahab and Ruth, and strangers to the covenant of promise to teach us that Jesus Christ came to save sinners and that those strangers to his people, we are not on that account excluded from a salvation which God has designed for all men. 
He is not the God of the Jews only. He is also the God of the Gentiles. And I would hope that you would thank God in a special way for that this morning. Because that's the line that we would be in as well. Those of the Gentiles. You know, God is still in the redeeming business today. He certainly is. God has the power to take bad situations uh, and to make them good, to make them right. He has the power to take sinful lives and, and to wash them clean and to make those lives useful in His kingdom. He can take situations that are, are less than ideal and even downright sinful and wicked, and He can use them to perform His own purposes. It speaks of the great power of God. And so as we look at the genealogy here in Matthew chapter 1, we think about that. How he used certain situations that no, were not according to his perfect will and plan. But he used them. He used them to perform his own purposes. And I'm just so thankful this morning that God chose to identify with common man. Uh, to share in our struggles, to become one of us. So then, uh, through salvation, we can then become one with Him. Praise the Lord for that. Well, in reading this genealogy, we're also reminded uh, that God keeps His promises. God keeps His promises. He promised that in Abraham's seed, all the world would be blessed. In Genesis 26, 4, we read, And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That was his promise to Abraham many, many years ago. And then he also promised sometime later to raise up a Savior from the family of David. And in Jeremiah 23, 5, we read this, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. And now, here many years later, as we read this genealogy, we see God keeping His promise. We see God keeping His word from generation to generation. What He had promised so many years ago was now becoming reality. And dear people, this morning, God still keeps His word. And that should be a blessing and a, and a, a real comfort to us. That the promises that we have in God's word were not just necessarily for a certain time, but they are relevant to our lives today in many situations. Many of them are relevant to our very lives today. God keeps His promises. Uh, the Bible says that God is, is not a man that He should lie, but He's one that keeps His word. And so we are called to trust Him, just as Abraham did without ever seeing the final outcome. Yet Abraham trusted, and we are called to trust him as well. Thinking about people here, Joseph is one of the characters here uh, that are very important in the Christmas story. And so I'd just like to note some godly uh, character traits here in, in his life. I believe that can challenge us today. But Joseph, you could say, is one of, 
maybe he's the, the unsung hero of Christmas. You know, in, in children's plays or something around Christmas time, when, people, when the children dress up and, and there's plays about that, that, uh, that time there when Jesus was born, <clears throat> Mary, of course, is one of the stars of the, of the play, and, and of course, Jesus. And, and you have the shepherds, they're really active during the play, you know, they're doing a lot of things, and, and they see the stuff on the hillside and run to the manger and run out and tell people, and they're really involved. And there's wise men that come and go, and there, there's a lot of active parts. But Joseph, <clears throat> Joseph is, is one of those, those parts that he, in a lot of ways, he sort of stands in the background. Now, certainly, he, he goes along with the, with the donkey there to Bethlehem, and he might say, you know, is there room in the inn? Um, and, and they say, well, no, and so then they go. You know, and, and he leads out in various ways. But then, you know, while everything is going on in the manger, you know, you kind of have this picture of Joseph, you know, maybe just standing there, and the shepherds are coming. And, you know, it probably wasn't that way, but in our minds, sometimes we, we have these pictures. But I would like to say this morning that Joseph was a tremendous part of the Christmas story and, a, and had a very powerful and leading role in, in the story as we read it and know it today. And I would like to look at, at just some of the character traits that I note here. Now, Joseph, see, all of a sudden, Joseph was in a, he was in a very difficult situation. Uh, I mean, I can imagine that when he found out that his dear Mary was expecting a baby, that he struggled with, with feelings of anger and feelings of deception. And Chad, by the way, <clears throat> since I said I don't need a drink of water, I do now. So could you, could you get me one? He did his job and asked me earlier, and I said, no, I'll be fine. <clears throat> you know, there you go. But, but I can imagine Joseph was, was struggling with, with feelings of anger and deception. You know, how could Mary have done this to me? I mean, I thought, I thought she loved me. And, and, and we don't know what all was going through Joseph's mind, but we can imagine that, that he was struggling with some of this. But yet the Scripture gives us an amazing picture of a man who made the choice to respond to this case of supposed unfaithfulness. He responded in a godly manner. <clears throat> he responded. He made the choice, I say. And obviously he could have done otherwise. And you can imagine what a difference that would have made in, in the story had he responded otherwise. But let us note here, starting at verse 19. Starting at verse 19, let us note um, some character traits. Thank you. <clears throat> we read... Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. <clears throat> Note, first of all, uh, the term, her husband. And, and don't let this term confuse you. You say, well, they weren't legally married yet. But that, that term, it might be better to say, her promised husband. And I am told that back in that day, the engagements were so serious, it was a very binding agreement in which they referred to one another as husband and wife, although they did not live together, but yet it was a very binding agreement. And so it's, it's referred to here as, as Joseph, her husband, 
or her promised husband. He was a just man. And that, that word just has to do with being good and righteous, a man of integrity. We see that uh, he was minded to put her away secretly. And this, to me, speaks to the fact that he was considerate. Uh, Joseph was considerate. He was respectful. Uh, Even when human nature, you could say, probably was screaming for revenge. Look what she has done to me. How could she ever do this? And, And, you know, you can imagine those feelings welling up inside of you. Yet he responded from what we understand in a considerate way, a respectful way to her. Verse 20, but while he thought about these things, he was not quick to act or make assumptions. He was not quick to make judgments about her. And I just had to think that, you know, a man of integrity will not be quick to act on his emotions or feelings. Uh, If you're honest with yourself, you know that our emotions or feelings can, can get in the way of what is really real. They can, uh, they can blind us. And I say a man of integrity will not be quick to act on his emotions or feelings, but he, he, will, he will thoughtfully ponder what is best. And that was Joseph. While he thought on these things, and there again, uh, you, can, you can imagine that his response would have been quite different if he had just responded impulsively, the first thing that came to him. Uh, Verse 24. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. I see an act of obedience there. Joseph, laced in with that act of obedience, is faith in God. He didn't... He didn't think that that was just a wild dream. No, when he woke up, it was, it was more, it was so much more than that. He didn't consider it to be just a, a nightmare or a wild dream, but he took it seriously. In other words, he was in tune with God. He had a, he had a relationship with God there that he knew this was serious, this was real, this was of God. And so when he awoke, he obeyed. He did as the Lord commanded. And then verse 25, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And this to me speaks of Joseph being a disciplined man, a man of character, a man of integrity. And it is evident by his actions that he understood and he honored the words of the angel regarding Mary's supernatural pregnancy. He understood that and he honored that. I say understood that to an extent. But he had faith. He had faith in God. And so then he proved this by abstaining from from sexual relations with her until after they were married, after Jesus' birth. I say that Joseph is just a real model of integrity for all of us. Not just the men, but for all of us. He's a man who trusted God. He's a man who chose to do what was right, even in the face of much uncertainty. Let's move along here and think about the purpose of the incarnation. So why did the Word become flesh and dwell among us? Why did He do that? You know, why was Jesus willing to give up the glories of heaven and come down to this earth, to suffer on this earth? Uh, Why? Verse 21. 
And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Uh, His name defines his purpose. Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua, which means the Lord saves, for he will save his people from their sins. The Lord saves. You know, I thought about some people find the name of Jesus to be offensive today. They'll talk about God, God this and God that, and, and there's not a big deal there. But when you start talking about Jesus Christ to them, they get uncomfortable. That's offensive to them. Something, all of a sudden, <clears throat> they don't like that. And, and perhaps it's because embedded in the name of Jesus is a call to salvation. It's a call to repentance. Perhaps that's part of it. But here we have <clears throat> the purpose of the incarnation uh, clearly spelled out. And it's, I mean, it's, it's a simple. The gospel is simple it's easy to understand. I, yes and no. Okay, I, I, we don't have time to look into that this morning, but I believe you know what I'm saying. Jesus came to bring salvation. Uh, he came to offer freedom from the bondage of sin. And I would just like to note a passage uh, that speaks about this. His purpose for coming, Hebrews chapter 2. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 2, starting at verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself, speaking of Christ here, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor, to help them that are tempted. That's beautiful. He became, it behooved him to become like unto his Brethren, like unto his brothers. Well, why? Why did the word become flesh? Why did Jesus leave the glories of heaven? We have some purposes for the incarnation found here in Hebrews chapter 2. To defeat the devil, to give freedom from the bondage of sin. We find that in verses 14 and 15. He became like us. So he could more perfectly show us the way to life. Show us the way to God. Verses 16 through 18 speak about that. And and this uh, stood out to me. He didn't become like the angels. It's not the angels that need help. It's you and me. And so he became like us. We're the ones that need help. He became like us in order so that he could once and for all pay and be the sacrifice for our sins. And yes, he became human. Uh, He understands our feelings. He understands our struggles. He understands our temptations. You could say, he's been there, he's done that. He understands. 
And I had to think about a story I heard of, of King James of Scotland many years ago. That he would, from time to time, put away his royal clothes and put on the clothes of a peasant. And he would go about the streets. And by doing this, he, he was more free to interact with people and they with him. And he would talk to them and ask about life and how things are going. And, and he could then sympathize with, with their struggles and with their handicaps. And, and he would do that from time to time. And then when he was once on the throne again, back in his kingly clothes, he could better sympathize with them. He could better rule them as, as, a, as a compassionate father, as it were. One that is merciful because, see, he's been with them. He understands them. It's a picture of our great God in sending Jesus as well. Jesus spoke many times about his purpose for coming. Jesus clearly understood uh, that he was here on a mission, that he was here to do the will of the Father. And we could look at a number of verses there, but we won't right now. I just want to mention this one. Um, in John eighteen thirty-seven, when Jesus was standing there before Pilate, Pilate said, Art thou a king then? And Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born. And for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. To bear witness of the truth. And certainly, we, in a nutshell, we could say the purpose of the incarnation is found in John 3.16. Let us all say that together. It was in our lesson this morning. We should know it by memory. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. In a nutshell, that's the purpose of God becoming flesh. And so, if you have allowed this purpose to be experienced in your life, then I trust that you are also in touch with the power of the Incarnation. The power of the Incarnation. Turn to Romans chapter 8 as we come uh, to a close here this morning. I'd like to think a few minutes here about the power of the Incarnation in our lives today. <clears throat> Starting at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And sometime I'll have to preach on, on just that verse, the first few verses. That is so beautiful. And that should just bring courage to our lives. You know, the devil is, is so quick to accuse us and to put thoughts in our minds that, that would, that would want to make us feel like we're a nobody and, and that, that you're always struggling. Josh, you're always struggling and you can't get over that and, and, and you're, you're just a mess. And, and you know, The devil loves to do that, bring discouragement. But there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, to those who are striving to, to walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh. That is, that is what we need to walk forward in courage as a believer. And to hold our heads high, as it were, and say, thank you, Lord, 
I am striving to live by the Spirit and say no to the flesh, and I'm going to move forward. We need that. Verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And let me just read verse 3 in the NIV. It, it brings it out so clearly um, more in our modern language. Verse 3, For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? What the law was powerless to do, God did by sending Jesus. Amen. So what was the law powerless to do? Well, the law was powerless to bring salvation. The law was powerless uh, to make us perfect before God. And Hebrews 7 verse 19 says, For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. I like that. But the bringing in of a better hope made perfect by the which we draw nigh unto God. It is through Jesus coming to earth and shedding His life's blood, showing us the way to God, that we then can have a close and personal relationship with Him. <clears throat> we can draw nigh unto God because of that. <clears throat> Jesus Christ brought in a, a new and a living way we no longer have to go through the requirements of the law to access God. No, but Jesus is the way to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's the power, I say, of the incarnation. God coming in the flesh, bringing freedom from the old law, and giving us direct access to the Father through Jesus' death on the cross. And so this morning, as we accept that plan, we can then experience that very power at work in our lives. We can experience the power to live a victorious Christian life. We can. It's not just a pie-in-the-sky type thing. It's something that can be reality with us. It can be experienced. The power to live a victorious Christian life. It's, it's that power to say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit. And then to walk in that. To live in that day by day. That power is available to us. Because God became flesh. And dwelt among men. <clears throat> Emmanuel. God with us. God with us. I say it's the greatest gift that has ever been given. And certainly you'll probably give a few gifts in the next few weeks, but they will pale by far in comparison to the greatest gift that God has ever given. And that was Jesus. That was Jesus. And so, as I consider that this morning, I just close by saying what the Apostle Paul said. He said, as he pondered that, he said, Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. Praise the Lord for that. I'll call for a song at this time.